0: You know, when you get old in life, things get taken from you. If you love something, if you have a strong passion for something... Life as we experience it, it's a big act, and the player is you. This place of like unconditional love and, and, and this feeling, just a feeling that I'd lost. I'm more carefree about it because I don't take it as seriously because
1: I view it all as a game. What up fam? That was Daniel Carcillo. He played 10 years in the NHL with a few different teams. I think he won a, a few different Stanley Cups with those different teams. Had a really successful career. But what ended his career was a series of uh, symptoms that were connected to the amount of concussions he had during his playing days. And he was dealing with a slew of symptoms, um, slurred speech, headaches, uh, irritability. And what has been one of my biggest fears is early onset dementia from traumatic brain injury. He went on a journey of really trying to work with the best of the best doctors, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, Doing his own research and connecting with people, and none of that really worked for him. And then he was called out to a farm where he did his first high dose psilocybin ceremony. And he says, after two sessions, six days apart, he, for the first time in as long as he can remember, was symptom free, which is really, really fascinating. He is now an advocate uh, for plant medicine and uh, he started his own company. Wasana Health, which is a life sciences company that leverages psilocybin-based medication to treat traumatic brain injuries. He's an incredible dude, incredible story, and I know you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Daniel Carcillo. Before we dive in, I want to mention the launch of a new, powerful, and transformative community. Although there are countless communities and networks of high-impact leaders, entrepreneurs, and influential visionaries, what they all lack is the depth of heartfelt connection that can only be achieved through communitas. Communitas refers to an unstructured state in which all members of a community are equal, allowing them to share a common experience facilitated through a rite of passage. This is what allowed me to create such unbreakable bonds with my teammates during my time in the NFL and why I'm so passionate and excited about facilitating an initiation into a new type of community, one where all of its members are focused on embodying their highest potential and fullest expression, who also have the desire to use their impact and influence to create a more beautiful world right here and right now. If you're interested in learning more or feeling called to apply, check out the link in the show notes. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Daniel, what's up, brother? How you doing?
0: I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. How are you?
1: I'm doing fantastic, man. I've been looking forward to to jamming out with you for a while. I've heard... A little bit about your story from the distance, uh, and I know you've, you've you've been very public with with your your healing journey since since your NHL career and the challenges you faced. And I'm I'm really looking forward to to diving in with you and, and sharing your experience. I know it's going to have a, a positive impact on on my audience and and anybody that's listening to this. Um, but before we drop drop into that, I'd love to start with kind of the younger years. I know all of us as as athletes, there's an origin story, a genesis. And so I'd love to start with kind of where, when that dream kind of started taking shape in your life of wanting to uh, reach the professional level uh, in the hockey realm.
0: Yeah, um, it was a little bit, I think, different than most kids in Canada. Most kids in Canada kind of just come out of the womb playing hockey. And I mean, everything revolved around the rink in our small town. And um, <clears throat> I was always more drawn to not necessarily like the professional side of it, thinking that I was going to be an NHL player, but um, I always had this like confusion about life. And, you know, we had par- I had parents who were like just um, somewhat hard at home. And, but I mean, definitely formed me into the person I am. So I took that kind of anger, frustration, confusion to a sport where at four years old, we could, drive our shoulder into somebody, you know, and it, to be honest, it just felt good to be able to release it and and leave everything else at home. So I was more drawn to the sport as an emotional release type of like anger management tool, less of like, I'm going to make the NHL. Really Uh, at four years old, you were doing this? Yeah. Four, five, six. I mean, we Mm -hmm. lived in a small farm town, man. Everybody was like, it's what we used to do, you know, beat each other up. We go, you know, have a street hockey game and there'd always be a fight that breaks out and but then you'd be hugging and you know um just how guys were like we were just you know i think bred a little bit different
1: yeah what a gift it is to have like these physical sports we were able to play to to really connect with that that internal anger and rage and have an outlet for it i feel like most men in our society and culture don't necessarily have that and it gets bottled up and it comes out in a lot of more unhealthy ways at least we had a and an avenue to really channel that into something constructive that kind of took us far in life.
0: Yeah. And I mean, especially hockey and the sport you played, you're going to suffer. Right. And, um, I feel like now, like I look at my son playing these sports with these, even these coaches and they don't teach them how to run lines. They don't teach them like that. If you like one-on-one battle drills, even just in soccer, Put a ball out. Whoever comes out with it, the other guy does ten push-ups. There's none of that. And so, like, if you in my mind, and I had a talk with this coach, I'm like, if you're not going to teach my son how to, when his body wants to stop, he, you can enforce a thought pattern that that tells him his mind can tell him to keep going, even just one more line. I'm not asking you to make these eight year olds throw up, but you gotta test
1: them. Make, him, make them make him uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. there's none of that anymore, man. It's so, wow. cause everyone's so worried about what these parents are going to say, you know? And um, so like, then I, I find myself having to do it in my home where I'm not egregious about it because I'm a softie, but I am going to, if I don't make my kids, like if I don't make it hard, somewhat hard on them in this household, when they get into the real world, like it's dog eat dog. It's still very much kill or be killed. You know, mm-hmm. when you get out of elementary school and you get into either business or college or education, like, so I want him and my girls to have that mentality that they can be strong. And so I take them like mountain biking, you know, and we have fun. But like, I also I'm behind him when he's struggling on a hill to go up and I'm go you know, encouraging him. Yeah. Then he gets up and he looks back at me with these wide eyes. Is like can't even believe he did it. You know. Mm. So, yeah, man, I'm grateful that we had, you know, tough sports to teach us about about life for sure. Yeah,
1: you can always do more than you think. And you know, I think that's you know back to my point earlier is you know you know because I was able to access deeper parts of myself through the sport, and I know what I'm capable of being able to push myself to the limits and then pass some because I was doing something um, to accomplish something that was you know with a team and doing something that was greater than just something for myself being of service to some greater goal allowed me to push myself in those ways and I, I noticed you know as a man when I walk into a room I don't have anything to prove because I know what I'm capable of I know what I've done I know who I am because I've pushed myself to places that most people like the average human just hasn't done I think that, that goes a long way in my my presence in a room and my ability to hold myself and not have to prove. And it creates this like healthy masculine energy rather than trying to like prove myself in a room because I don't really know what I'm at. i have to like kind of pretend.
0: You got a jockey. Yeah. I think they call that the small man syndrome. Uh, You wouldn't believe how many people the last four years of my life that I've met like that, that just Mm -hmm. uh, have this huge ego and feel a need to, to enforce it on people that are either working for them or, or in, in lesser positions than them. Um, and if push came to shove, you know, if somebody stood up to them, then, then they crumble, you know? So to your point, I think it's just a knowledge of knowing and being comfortable that, you know, I don't need to fight, but if it came to that, I'll just, I'll fucking destroy you. You know, yeah, like, I know what and I'm it's not a hand to hand combat thing. It's also like an emotional thing. And, you know, in, in business, you know, if you don't, um, if things don't go your way or you don't like somebody, you don't, you, you don't turn around and and then get them right away. You know, it's usually a couple of years later, a couple of months later, um, where this person or people will look back and say, Oh shoot, that was him, you know, um, <laughs> So yeah, it's, uh, I like, I like, I like, you know, what I'm doing now, because that skill set allows me to number one, at work people, and that never changes in anything, right? So, and that's also why, like, I want, I want my boy and I want my girls from a young age to know that you know, it's, it's less about skill. I wasn't like that skilled. You know, there were a lot yeah, of neither. other kids there. Yeah. And I just I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the
1: strongest. Yeah. No,
0: I just worked harder than you in everything. Mm. In soccer mm. in school in sport, you know, you, you can't outwork me.
1: Mm. Going back to those, those formidable years when you were younger, you talked about some challenges you had at home and then having hockey as an avenue to release, aggression do you mind speaking a little bit to that what were some of the challenges that you faced uh growing up in that family dynamic especially now that you have a family of your own yeah um some stuff that's like
0: tricky that I've reconciled that my parents know right it's like they you do what you know you know and and you do what you've experienced in the past because you think that that is how you have to raise your son or daughter and um one thing was uh I grew up in a household with two brothers. I was the middle. I was always the biggest. So I had my two brothers kind of ganging up on me, but like we would hurt each other, you know, like we would fight. And my mom, um, was like an amazing woman, you know, like raised us not on her own because my dad contributed by going to work and showing his love that way. That's how men used to do it. And I realized that now I didn't realize it back then. Um, but when we'd ever fought whenever we'd fight, like, you know, it was old school mentality. Like you get hit by your parents. And I was just really sensitive and I still am, and that'll never change. Um, and I'm, a, I'm an empath, so like I feel things more and it really just hurt me, you know? Um, and now I've been, I've been able to look at it now because when I see my son or my daughter's fighting, I like my initial reaction is to lose it because and yell. And it's from a place of me being a parent. I don't want to see one of my kids, you know, hurting one of my other children because I love them both so much. So then I'm like, I I had this realization, I don't know, probably four years ago or five years ago. I was like, Oh shoot. That's, that's why, you know, they Mm. would get so mad. And, um, so that was a little bit, um, you know, just, it was just tough. So you grow up, um, in these types of like dynamics and then, Like we said before, just thank God that we had outlets. Um, And then, you know, when you you get older, then you can communicate these things, which I have, and then we can forgive and then move on because they were doing the best that they could with the knowledge that they have. And then it's such a blessing because I was able to stop that cycle and I don't hit my kids, but like I said before, I do put them in situations that make them uncomfortable and that they have to, you know, like when they fall, when they were younger, I wouldn't pick them up.
1: Just mm. get up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I do like, the same thing. It's so funny yeah. at the park when like a kid falls and like everybody runs and their nervous. Wow. System, like the parents nervous systems are all activated, which is actually the kids can feel that. And so yeah. they like, even if though they might not be very hurt, if a parent's coming over fully activated, being like, yeah, Oh my God, falling. are you okay? And they're like, Oh, I don't know if I'm okay. Like my son, I give them, I give them space. I let him feel into it. And if he's, like, really bawling and crying, I go comfort him. But if he falls and he's kind of, like, checking it out, looking around, like, am I okay? I just, I, like, allow him to get up and take care of himself. I think that's massive. You're good, man.
0: You know, like, (laughs) just dust it off. You know, no broken bones. It's like, are you hurt or are you injured? That type of mentality, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can play hurt. If you're injured, that means you have a broken bone or you have a pulled muscle. And you probably, yeah, of course, then it's time to get the treatment or comfort the kid or... Um, but yeah, like just little things like that, you know, um try to and you know, like my mother-in-law or (laughs) like so other people will be like, Man, you're like you're a meanie, or you know, it's like, no, you know, I'm not not being mean. I think I think it's um I think it's like rude to not do it that way because again, it's a disservice. To these children, to think that when they get older, I'm always going to be there to pick them up. I'm not, right? And and I'll help them any way I can. But you need to learn how to help yourself in this world. Um, I feel like with these phones and the path that we're going down as a society, it's getting dangerous. Um, and you know, you're always going to encounter you're going to encounter killers, right? Not in the sense that they're going to take your life, but they're going to take food from your table and business any way that they can and uh, in school. And it's just a really competitive environment. When you get out of the house, it's never ever going to change because we're animals, you know? Um, So, you know, I just, I would be doing a disservice to my kids, whether they're girls, Mm. boys, if I didn't parent them that way.
1: Yeah. I feel the same way. I've been on this this deeper healing journey, which which I know you have as well. And and having a deeper understanding of kind of these emotional experiences, and you know, being a, a parent now, having deeper compassion for our parents and the way they raise us, and always doing the best they can. And I feel the same way. But there's you know something that happens when we were kids that we just maybe didn't receive the love or the validation or the connection that we desired in those kind of states of consciousness when we were younger. And I know you've been on this journey, being able to reflect back, and you said uh you know those fights with your brother and the way your parents kind of raised you made you feel a certain way do you have you connected with those emotions like what emotions were you feeling um as a young kid that you didn't really maybe couldn't make sense of then but maybe have been able to process and reconcile now
0: um just n- just normal emotions just you know frustration anger not being heard being misunderstood uh, not always being included you know um i was always like a smart kid in school so that kind of alienated me from you know um certain crowds that i thought i wanted to be in you know not cool I mean, to be smart i always yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i Fuck. always played like double a and in canada um if you're not playing triple a you're not playing at the best minor hockey league levels so you know you get picked on there and i was just um it was always a little bit more difficult, you know? And I was like, I was, I was the kid that was showing up to the party first, right? Like Mm. the only boy there. It's like, (laughs) I was a dork, you know, and I still am. There's still, you know? Um, so it was like, it was difficult to fit in at times, you know? And then it's funny how it changed because we were from a small town and, and, um, when we went to high school, I remember this, like it was yesterday, the first day of school, it was a big like lobby area. And you had the Aurora kids over here and you had the the King city kids over here and the new market kids over here. And you had all these different groups. And for whatever reason, like our guys, we became like, you know, the alphas and, and we were good at sport. We grew into our looks, but then we all like really just stuck together, you know, and then I ended up, I was drafted to the NHL when I was in grade 11 or, really? um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We get drafted early. Um, so, you know, that like kind of like that dynamic flip-flopped within, within two or three years, it was like a really fast change for
1: me. And as as um, you're growing into your body and your athletic ability and you started really elevating your game as far as the hockey player yeah. goes and started getting this attention from the NHL. Do they draft you in 11th grade just to kind of own your rights and then they, do they put you into developmental leagues or do you go like, how does that work?
0: Yeah. So it's much different than the NFL. We don't go to college as a developmental league. We are in high school and we go to what's called the Canadian hockey league. Mm -hmm. Um, So at 16, you're playing against 16 to 21 year olds. Um, And if you're in high school, you go to high school. If you're in college, you go to college. If you're older and you're not doing college, you just you know, go to the rink early. Um, but yeah, you're drafted 17, turning 18. Um, if you're going to make it and other kids have, but if you're really going to make it, you're, you're getting scouted at that age. Um, and in high school, yeah, you're, you're drafted. And, uh, and, um, and then I turned pro as soon as I, as soon as I graduated, I went to the minor leagues, which is the American hockey league, the AHL. Um, mm-hmm. so if you sign a contract, you sign a two-way contract, and you make about, I think I was making 55000 in the AHL, um, as opposed to the um, the lowest level being, uh, I think at that time was around like three
1: hundred grand. Mm. It's like when I was playing the practice squad, made maybe $80,000 on the same team. There's 10 practice squad guys, and then an inactive player who's on the active roster, who's literally dressed, not dressed on the sidelines, same kind of weekly... Like schedule and amount of work they put in, but one of them's making five hundred grand, one of them's making eighty thousand. It's just it's different the dynamic there. Um, so let's go into fast forward a little bit into your professional career. Talk a little bit about what it was like to to make it uh, in the pros, start making a name for yourself, and and speak to maybe the the top of the mountain experience, the pinnacle experience of of your NHL career. Some of the the memories that you have. Yeah, um,
0: pro was something else. It was different. Um, you know when I. First started in the NHL. Um, I was playing on a team with like either kids that were too young to go out and have fun or, or guys that were older at the end of their career in Arizona. Wayne Gretzky was my coach, which was funny. Um, so he had his old boys club all around. I brought my brothers down just cause I wasn't, I wanted to hang with people I knew. Um, and uh, the first five years, like, you know, it was just all about, you know, making a name for myself, fighting, Standing up for myself, teammates, scoring goals—I can kind of. I was kind of like a bit of a new breed that could do it all. Um, but I really—I started knocking a lot of guys out and making a name for myself as a fighter.
1: Um, That's a specific role in hockey, right? Like I'm not familiar. There's there's guys that are, your role is like go. You're, you're the bruiser. What do what do they call that? Yeah, uh, enforcer. But there's like enforcer.
0: heavyweights that can't really play. that will play four minutes a game. Um, then there's like just come in and start riling and, shit up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was just <laughs> like, when I was in the game, some games would just start with a fight for no reason whatsoever. You know, <laughs> I was like, I tone. was always kind of, yeah, but it was always weird to me. Like didn't make any sense. You know, the only time I would ever fight somebody is if either they did something to someone on my team or I did something to someone on their team with a huge hit or something. And you know, you're, you're a man, you, you stand up, there's honor in the game and, yeah, okay, I, I deserve, I'll fight you, you know? Um, I started winning like pretty much all of my fights and, um, uh, you know, and then you kind of get pigeonholed. Um, but, uh, I could always play on like the first or second line, you know, not every single game, but for some shifts, you know? And, um, and yeah, so like the first five years, it was, uh, it was like, I was, I was Doing a lot of things off guys that I probably you know shouldn't have done. I had a ton of injuries, uh, because I was running hard, but I was playing really good hockey. And um
1: at what 25. Kind of actually, doing? What kind of stuff were you doing I was just, off the field? Just partying, you know, like yeah. just living. Any specific experiences to share. I mean, you don't have to go too deep into like the I mean, I, no, I, I know I how it just, is, dude. I party too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was just running, you know, I just like mm. I was a 20-year-old kid with you know, getting paid way too much money to play a game. Um, and and we were just having fun. Um, I always heard those NHL players love to drink. Yeah. 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 A lot of booze. Um, yeah, there was some, there were drugs. There was, there was a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Uh, it really mimics like hockey's like very up, down, up, down, you know, it's like a, it's a, it's a scissor ride of a roller coaster. you know, and, uh, you're in pain pretty much the first day of training camp like your mm-hmm. body starts breaking down. Um, and, uh, and you manage that differently. Right. And back then, this is 2004, 2005. We weren't talking about mental health. We weren't talking about concussions. We weren't talking about ashwagandha and rhodiola and yep. you know mushrooms and CBD for inflammation. Like, no, man, we were getting pumped full of cordyceps or, uh, cortisol, tortoral, painkillers. Um, you know, just all the really bad stuff.
1: It was was so normal back then too. I remember they used to, they used to have like a bowl of painkillers just in the training room. Like you just, you didn't even need a prescription. The the trainer
0: would walk up and down. What do you need? I remember one guy going, I need five Ambien and, and a bunch of muscle relaxers. And he's like, sure, here you go. And they would give it to you in a white envelope, you know? And Mm. this guy, it's this Russian kid. I won't say his name, but then, you know, he'd be calling around the rooms all messed up, like looking for more ambient, you know, when clearly the guy had a problem, but it just didn't, didn't matter back then. Um, and then things started to happen. Guys started to die and, you know, things started to come to light. So that kind of slowed down towards the end of my career for sure. But think think
1: people started to die, like, play, like current players, like from drug overdose. Yeah. Or, well, yeah. 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 Just guys. Anybody but, you knew? Yeah.
0: Um, Well, like when I was still playing, like, you know, Steve Monitor, like Wade B, a bunch of guys that were, you know, fighters, bruisers, um, and not necessarily when they were in their career, but towards the end, like if you manage pain a certain way for 10 years, like it's not like you're just going to stop when you get out of the sport because it actually feels even worse when you're out of the sport because you're not moving, you know, um, so, yeah, but no, there was, there's, there's a lot of guys, man. There's a lot of guys that ended up, you know, finding stage four CTE, which is a neurodegenerative disease, which you guys know very well and went through. Um, I went through that at, you know, 30. That's why I retired with seven concussions. Um, Let's talk about that a little bit.
1: Let's talk about yeah. your, your decision to retire towards the end of your career and, and what, that process was like was it something that was all of a sudden and you you were forced out because of this was it something that you just decided because you were trying to take care better care of yourself i saw you guys go through that lawsuit
0: you know and i was mm-hmm. like all right i definitely have those symptoms um and then i was just getting my thing was in in hockey again i didn't do it for the glory or for the for anything like that i did it i mean i did it make money like and and to i wanted to play as i wanted to make the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time did you love the game at all yeah well i yeah of course i loved the game but i hated these institutions that were like telling you what you could say
1: and then you got to wear this and and you had to act a certain way and yeah fucking bullshit the business side of it like really took the love of the game away from me man it's 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 really challenging it, what happened was like when i was 25
0: um i got I had a, like a ton of injuries then these doctors you know prescribed me 90 30 milligram hydrocodones after so i got like deep into this addiction to these painkillers and then i um i finally asked for help and i went to a rehab and that was the first time so this is 20 when i was 25 um that Still i started playing. to learn about yeah, I started learning like meditation and uh,
1: breath work and yoga. And Where, how um, did you learn those? Where did those resources come from? Was it from the rehab, the rehab facility? Wow. Yeah. It was an amazing facility. Like saved my life,
0: completely changed my life, extended talk my career that, by five years.
1: Talk about yeah. that, that, that experience specifically, like how, how the emotional, mental, paradigm shifted in that experience of being in in rehab? Like what came up for you and and what was that shift like? So at 21, I got a
0: DUI in Arizona. I did 90 days in jail. Um, And then I was, we have a substance abuse program. And I was immediately entered into that. So I was you in that my whole career. 90
1: days in jail did, while you were playing You were, you were 90 days straight <sighs> in jail. What, what, yeah. what did your team do? Were they just like, fuck, like, we'll see you when you get out.
0: So, well, Wayne
1: was my coach. So we got special treatment. The sheriff
0: mm-hmm. let me serve it after, after the year was over. So I just, you know, I was just during the season served my time. No, after the, well, it was after right. The- it was,
1: it was during yeah. training camp. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you were like yeah. going to go to jail for 90 days miss the entire season well like let's let's let you play the season and you can come to jail and for the off season and you come in after, yeah, yeah. Damn. always special treatment you know
0: <laughs> well we still had to go uh, to
1: jail fuck it wasn't that special I mean I guess it's like hey just come serve your time later yeah so like so that
0: introduced me to the substance abuse program so then these doctors were like I was always the, I don't have the phenomenon of craving I did the whole AA thing I, I stayed sober for two years but I was like hey man I don't wake up like craving alcohol. I don't, I, there's alcohol in my house. I don't have to drink it till I pass out, which is like the definition or until you, and then you go buy more when you have money. That's the definition of this, this phenomenon. Of cra- I didn't have it. I had it with opiates though. You know, I definitely, cause it numbed out the things that I was feeling, not only the pain, but then I had this spiritual thing going on from a young age that I had to, that I just didn't know. I didn't quite look at because, you know, emotionally, we didn't. I didn't develop. I was still playing a freaking game, man. I've been playing this hockey game for, you know, and it's just all kind of like a big. It's like a big joke, you know. Like mm-hmm. you just wake up, you know exactly what to do. I know how to keep my body in shape, and you know, I I did like the minimum to just get by. And um, but thank God for that because that saved my life. Because after two surgeries back to back, when I was twenty five, I got into these opiates. In three months, man, I was. I was done um, and I had to ask for help. And then I went to this place called the Canyon and it's in Malibu, the top of the hill. It actually got burnt down during that, that fire. Dang. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was like, and I went there to kind of, we were in Malibu for something else and we were just filming. I'm like, Oh man, I really, I want to go see this. Um, the Dalai Lama visited it, blessed it. It was like amazing property down in this Canyon. And I just had the most amazing experience for 90 days. I, um, I got introduced to a bunch of people that were amazing. Like (laughs) how was it? Like amazing addicts, you know? And, but then we all still kept in touch, especially with one of my good friends in Chicago, Brad, really successful lawyer. And we're still really good friends. Um, and it just taught me, you know, in the morning we would do a mindfulness act where we'd like scan our whole body and, and breathe into the parts that felt off. And, uh, you know, luckily when I went there, it was kind of on my own accord. I wasn't, I didn't have to do any meds or get off of any, you know, I kind of weaned off by myself. And, um, it's like, oh man, like talking about what's actually going on can release this, this stress. The breath work can help. The yoga can help the eating better. Cause I didn't, you know, if it wasn't broken, don't fix it. You know,
1: um, what were some of the biggest trips you made eating from like before till now?
0: Like, f- just a lot of, like, fruit, um, you know. Less bullshit, uh,
1: like, processed foods and shit like that. Probably didn't yeah, drink as much.
0: But, dude, I would, like, when I was in Arizona, just after in and out you burn 3,000
1: calories, you could crush anything, right? So, like, just oh, yeah. two burgers okay. from in and out and, you know. <laughs> so, just having an awareness of that. Before, you just didn't even have awareness how it affected your body, yeah. which is a big thing. I, I mean, I ate, like, it's crazy. I was a professional athlete and the shit I ate, and I didn't really start taking care of my body till like, towards the end of my career. And once I started eating healthy, I actually started losing weight and as an offensive lineman being close to 300 pounds my whole career they're like you need to gain weight so i actually went back to starting eating like shit to keep that weight on and that's when i really noticed the like how it impacted my energy levels feeling more lethargic not being able to like just have as much vibrancy in my body
0: the body the eating but then talk about like the spirituality Stuff Mm. because now you're talking about your feelings, you're bring up these emotions. I reconciled everything with my parents. I brought my brothers down there. It was amazing. We all sat in the room. We were like the criers, right? (laughs) And we just all told each other everything that you know we felt. And we moved on from, from that day. But spiritually, it fucked me up because then I started going out and I'm like, well, I'm like, I'm really good at what I do. I know how to hurt people on the ice. And you know, I started thinking about what I was doing. And then when you think in a sport that fast, it's bad. You're supposed, you're just supposed to react, right? There's no, Oh, should I too late? Your jaw's broken. Mm-hmm. Um, so that messed me up for sure. And then I started to change the way I was as a player, but it was really good. Like the last five years of my career, man, I I was a good teammate, good person, good friend, good family member. I went to the Stanley cup finals four times with three different teams in five wow. years when I started to live the right way. Uh, so everything changed for me and, um, you know, the concussions ended my career, but, um, and then there was some dark periods. There was another like dark five years, uh, you know, in 2015 on,
1: Before we get into that, I want to talk about, so this, you went to this rehab and you had this spiritual experience, developed all these tools, you know, in the, in the culture of professional athletes, and I'm sure in the hockey environment, talking about drinking opioids, pain management, and these like unhealthy ways, how did you integrate all these tools into who you were into this culture? I mean, were you viewed as how kind of this <laughs> hippie weirdo or did you share no. this with your teammates? How did you integrate no. it into what you're doing?
0: Cause dude, you'll never see me wear mallet beads. You'll never see me in a white shawl. I'm like, I'm a very spiritual person, but you wouldn't be able to tell, you know, mm-hmm. because I'm the type of guy in this world where everyone's talking about everything that they do and showing you. And like, I'm not the Instagram shamans. <laughs> nah, I'm just like, dude, I, I have what I have. You know, um, I do like telling my story because I know that it helps a lot of people because I know that there's a lot of people out there, especially with concussion that suffer like badly, their families suffer caregivers. So I do like talking about what has helped me and then maybe it could help them. Um, but I'm not, yeah, I'm
1: not, I'm not showy about it for sure. So, but it was helping you with your performance on the field. You were med- meditating regularly. Did you lose some of yeah. that connection when you started playing and kind of being around a different environment or were you able to hold those practices, those tools? And obviously it helped.
0: Yeah, no, I I'd go to I go to the bar with the guys. I, uh, in, in, so when I got to, traded to Chicago, um, when I found this recovery and then I came back, there was a guy by the name of Steve Monitor that was on the team that was seven years sober. And like, you would never be able to tell good looking guy, tattoos everywhere, you know, talk to every girl at the bar, like just like oozed confidence. And I'm like, who the hell is this guy? You know, and in the rooms, when you're getting better, they always tell you, like, if you're attracted to somebody, go up and talk to them and figure out how they're doing it. So then maybe you could learn how to implement some of that in your life. And me and him just, man, we went to like pretty much every night, every lunch, every dinner. We would be talking about spirituality. We'd be meditating in hyperbaric chambers. We would be, you know, you know, burning incense and say, we'd be going to meetings. We'd be going to drum sessions. Like we were, we were in it. And um, it was funny. Cause when I got to Chicago as a Blackhawk, Patrick Kane, I remember like came up to me. He's like, oh man, he's like, where are we going tonight? I'm you know? <laughs> like, no, man. We're going to get into to, Yeah. I don't, I don't drink anymore. He's like, what? You know? And, uh, I was like, yeah, no, I, but like, I'll go with you. I don't care. You
1: know, I'll chill out and
0: have a ball. There was no Bellagino. judgment of
1: like, I don't drink anymore. No. Or you drink. So I'm not hanging out with you. It's just, it's just a lifestyle never. choice. And there's an energy to that when you're around people that choose that, but they still like to have fun, can go party and like Damn right. enjoy yeah. themselves. It's just that choice of like, I am, I just don't do that.
0: Yeah. 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 And, uh, they never made it weird. It was like, um, I'll never forget. Like Nicol, Nicholas, uh, Nicholas was always like, come up and be like man I love that you're here sober like how are you <laughs> how are you doing it you know but he would always kind of look out for me too um because I mean it doesn't come without its problems because usually if you're not really strong-willed minded etc um you know where there's smoke there's fire usually you don't like go by the fire if you don't want to get burnt right mm-hmm. um so but yeah no it was fine it was it was fine and I was um is always going to new restaurants. Me and Steve were always checking out new stuff and everybody would be coming up to us because like Caner, Taves, these guys, Seabrook, Keith, Jarmelson, these guys that played 20, 25 minutes a night, 30 minutes a night. Um, I was playing four or five. They would be asking me like, where do we go? Who's in town? What artist is in town? Is there a new restaurant that we can pop into? And like, you know, those are the types of things I talked about. I didn't talk about like, where are we shooting on this goalie tonight? Oh, look, the sheet says low blocker. That's where he's weak. I'm like, no, man, I played, played the game off of emotion and just tried to have fun. I made a playlist for the boys. Um, and yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the last five years was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but it was also like really painful because, you know, Steve ended up passing away um, and it was, You know, we talked about before why I decided to stop. I saw the same symptoms in me that I saw in Steve that I was reading about with your guys' lawsuit. And um, I ended up getting my sixth and seventh concussion in my last two years. And um, I just had to, my, my, my then girlfriend became my wife after I retired, was pregnant. All I ever wanted to do was be a dad. And so I started to like weigh all of these things and I just said, you know, I won two cups. It was like, well, what else, what else is there for me to do? So I made a decision to step away and, but I did it very publicly. I, uh, you know, one thing that we talked about earlier is like making sure our kids suffer, but also I want somebody to hold my kids accountable if they're doing anything wrong, you know? And uh, so like, I know that we were lied to, And so I want to expose that. And I want everybody else to know that we didn't have this information, but the league that we were playing with and the doctors, they did. And Steve had fucking 19 concussions, man. Diagnosed, documented concussions.
1: Okay. And what what happened to Steve? Was it the concussions that led to something or did he?
0: Yeah, it was all of it, right? It 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 was the trying to manage the mild dementia that he was experiencing at 34, the mild dementia that I was experiencing at 30 when I stepped away, slurred speech, headache, head pressure, insomnia, impulse control issues, um, weight loss, short-term, long-term memory loss, um, having 17 keys for one deadbolt, you know, like these types of things. When I After he passed, I went to his house. These things like break your heart. Um, and... He was searching. He was he was going to do ayahuasca. He was um, he was trying to find healing, trying to find things that um, you know flush out this neuroinflammation, this damage, like reconnect our brain, right? These brain hemispheres, and um, and so yeah. When when he passed, I kind of you know i did I did a video at the Players Tribune. During the Stanley Cup finals, because nobody really watches hockey, the only time it's really covered is is when you're in the finals. And uh, I just did a call to arms with the Players' Tribune and said that we need to get better. Steve was out there on his own, suffering. Nobody was helping him. He was very involved with the alumni, but the alumni was nowhere to be found. The league was nowhere to be found. So, like, who's who's helping after we're done? And if it's nobody, great. But don't moonlight and say the NHL is a family and all this stuff when – you know, you had this information, you didn't give it to us so that we could assess, uh, you know, and make the right decision. We probably all would have still signed, but who cares? Like make it's our decision. And you didn't give us that information. And then he was gone and, you know, nobody could help. Him. Um, and then he died, you know, um, by a friggin' by his, by, you know, in his house, like alone, you know? Um, so I got mad and, uh, and then I, so I started and I still do this just on a lesser level, but for the first five years, man, I would educate everybody on concussion, um, education, awareness, how the league had this information. There's a really great investigation, um, investigational journalist that was helping just expose all this stuff. And, um, and then I, then it's like, well, okay, so what are we going to do to make it better? That's kind of the, the shift that happened when I found mushrooms you know, because, uh, I became really suicidal, really suicidal. And, um, I didn't know what else to do because I, I'd spent probably in the first five years after I retired about half a million bucks, I had means I could get the best treatment in the world. And I was a very strong advocate and just nothing was doing it, man. Nothing was, was reactivating my brain. And like, you know, you talk about like mind, body, we treat mind, we treat the body, Nobody treats the spirit, you know. And I had to do that. And so, thank God, the mushrooms found me. And uh, mm-hmm. you know,
1: Uh-oh.
0: I went yeah, to uh, <clears throat> yeah, all this stuff for for a really good reason. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm excited to get into that. You know, I think when when a lot of the CT st- CTE stuff was coming out, it was it was towards the the middle of my career, and it really created this this underlying fear and anxiety that developed of. But you, you know, ignored I, it,
0: right? Because I Yeah, I uh,
1: ignored it. I kept playing. Because you're it, still in it. Yeah, I'm still in it. And it started making me think about, you know, what what happens when you start going crazy? Because it's an awareness thing. It's not like, oh, I broke my arm and it's very clear that this is the thing that's wrong. It's a slow, gradual deterioration uh, deterioration of your level of awareness, your consciousness, the the lens in which you actually view reality. And it's actually what got me into um meditation and reading books i really wanted to how can i be proactive with my brain health learning about nutrition high inflammatory foods learning about how to create new neuroplasticity in the brain neurogenesis new experiences novel experiences and then i started seeing the research around mushrooms and the fmri scans and the just the neural networks that they create and i said wow that's what started getting me interested in this and and traveling and all this stuff and so i'm really grateful for it leading me down that path and then it ended up leading into a deeper connection with spirituality and the nature of what is and creation and consciousness. But it really started out from really this taking care of my brain because there's this underlying fear that I was living with. So I'm interested when you started having these symptoms, what was that actual experience like? Was it something that you were aware of a shift or was it a subtle kind of undertone of like something's off? Was it a reflection from your Closest relationship, saying like, "Hey, you're you're acting different, or you're you're a little bit more kind of a shorter fuse with your anger. Like, what what's going on? How did you recognize that these symptoms were showing up when there's such a subtle thing that's happening kind of under the surface of your entire experience of life?"
0: So, I mean, dude, I was waking up. A good day would be, you know, five symptoms. A bad day's fifteen or twenty.
1: You know. So, and what are these symptoms? You say like uh, slurred speech, headache. Head pressure,
0: uh, migraines, insomnia, vision issues, uh, equilibrium issues, balance issues, memory issues, impulse issues, a lot of sleep issues.
1: How was your emotional like feeling with having experienced that? Was it just like fuck? Like what's like? Is it well? It's worth like living?
0: N- not in the beginning, right? It's like well, fuck. I'll figure it out because I always do. So let's okay. So now let's let's take the money that I have right. With the connections that I have and let's try to get better. So first, like two years was always concussion clinics, CT brain banks, uh, talking to the best of the best and and paying cash because unfortunately these multidisciplinary approaches to treating the brain don't get covered by insurance. And if they do, these people are not too enthralled with, you know, fighting insurance companies to get reimbursement for like a, cognitive tests, right? And EEG. Um, but what I do, um, is listen, I'd listen intently to every word that comes out of an individual's mouth. And so I did that and, and I kept hearing a common theme and you don't need to be a doctor to know how to kind of treat yourself and what makes you feel good and bad. So I started hearing, well, first of all, it started with diagnostics, a lot of diagnostics. So they would test like your earlobe fluid, which is your vestibular system, your ocular, um, which the eye-brain axis is a very strong indication of of um, your brain health. So if you see people, their eyes are off, or it's the first thing I look at um, as a survivor. Then they they test you cognitively, so on an iPad as well as an EEG. EEG measures the electrical waves between your six brain hemispheres. We all have six. Everybody thinks that concussion's on the whole brain. It's not. It's on one area that's affecting a couple others. Um, and so then they identify language lives in a specific part of our brain. Um, you know, the creativity, the focus, all of these things. So they're testing that on the iPad with the EEG, with the vestibular testing, the ocular testing, and then your autonomic testing. So your heart rate going from sitting to standing, Does it race these types of things? And then they take all of that information and they make you a personalized program accordingly. And the one thing they say is we're going to wake up the brain hemisphere. For me, it was my lower right cortex. That's damaged, right? I'm like, okay, great. What do I have to do? So I would spend five days like intensive programs, you know, paying 1500 bucks a day. And, and um, you would obviously you would feel good. Anybody doing something that intently, for 5 days you're going to feel better but then it would drop off with your at home exercises and then you know they never talked about like hormone testing or supplementation or you know diet or um so you know that was kind of like the first um foray into just understanding how I could self-diagnose myself um and then um so I did that for a while I didn't get better And I was like tired of paying money. I was tired of these people telling me the same thing. And um, so then I moved on to hyperbaric chambers, uh, more holistic things, uh, float tanks or self-deprivation tanks, Um, moxa acupuncture uh, with a specific girl in LA that does like this this brain health routine that can flush inflammation, Um, you know, yoga, focusing on diet, um, hormone testing So the pituitary gland sits in a very rigid part of our skull and gets affected. And like, it made a lot of sense for me to be like, well, shoot, like, why don't these clinics have this testing? Like why can't they take what's happening in my body's producing? And then also do the ocular, the vestibular, like it feels like these things should be married. Um, And so I went down that path for two or three years and, um, and yeah, man, I just, I just could not, I couldn't get over the hump. Like I would feel good
1: for a month or two. It must've been frustrating to like invest all this money, doing all these things, all these experts and you're still feeling like shit. And
0: I was also really angry. I was like still going at the NHL on Twitter, Instagram. So I was living in this, this fucking bubble of just frustration. Mm. And then eventually, you know, it started to like, you know, the foundation started to crack where I was like, um, You know, it was difficult on my wife because I was sick and I was being very selfish in that. And I still believe I you have to be as an individual. I have to selfishly take care of myself, or else I'm not gonna be able to be present with my kids. I'm not gonna be able to be present with you. I didn't have a job. I didn't, I wasn't, you know, doing anything. So um then, you know, you're going to parties, you're around people that you could tell don't want to be around you because you're unpredictable. And you know, Dan's just a dick. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, there were parts of me that I was, you know, and you have to take accountability for that. But it was like from a place of just like, I didn't want to be around anybody. I wanted to just, I was in so much pain. I just wanted to kind of be alone. And, um, and I'm very comfortable being alone, right? Like being alone isn't lonely to me at all. It's like sometimes when I'm the happiest. Um, and so I got to a point where I was like, man, I can't let my my kids see me like this and think this is a normal way to act and live. So I started to, um, you know, number one cause of death is suicide after a TBI or traumatic brain injury. And I started to make plans to unburden my family. It wasn't a selfish thing. I was just like kind of done. I was like, uh, oh, tried everything. What, what,
1: what kind of plans you, did you plan out in your, in your mind? What would what, that look like?
0: Um, So the first couple of like images or, um, weeks was like, there was these beams in my house that, um, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, um, and I've talked about this before. I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile people coming home to like, see that. So then I started to, just when I was like driving in my truck at that time, um, just going fast, no,
1: no belt, putting it into a tree. Um, you know, just and were those and spontaneous thoughts possible. while you were driving or was this something that you're like, yeah, they were always an undercurrent of your planning.
0: Well, they started out as spontaneous and then it started out as like being a plan, you know? Mm. Um, and then one day, like eventually execute it,
1: you know? Um, how close did you get to executing? I was,
0: I was close. The only, the only thing that kept me from not, I just thought in my head that it was, even though I can reconcile that it wasn't, like a selfish out. It was a fucking, that's like, I I'm an honorable and not to say that people who have done that aren't honorable. I just couldn't get there. I couldn't, um, I just, yeah, I just, I just couldn't get there. I don't know why there was some type of block where there was always hope, always hope that I would figure this
1: fucking thing out. Right. Um, Do you think that's what happens with most people in that situation is they lose hope? Because there is a natural, like it takes a lot of, like one perspective of committing suicide is it takes a lot of courage to actually go through with it, right? Yeah. And I mean, was that the hope? Was was that what people let go of when they finally do it? What's your perspective on that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I tried everything. I thought I tried everything right. From like a perspective of getting better. And I wasn't going to live the rest of my life in that type of pain. And it it progressively just kept getting worse as dementia does. There was definitely dealing with mild dementia. And so, um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I decided to accept an invitation from a former teammate to go to a farm and he knew, like he could tell on Instagram and Twitter, he's like, dude, it's like, (laughs) <laughs> you're in it or do you want to come and just check this place out and you know this guy grows all his own medicine and and um and I was like sure you know I'm not doing anything I've, I've always liked the idea of farming and I always worked on farms growing up and connect back with nature and maybe it'll take my mind off all this stuff that I'm going through and um so I accepted this invitation to to Colorado where psilocybin the active ingredient in magic mushrooms happen to be a um, decriminalized thing. So I couldn't get arrested. And, um, and so I showed up at this house and, uh, you know, I thought we were going to learn about planting CBD and these genetics and diet and functional mushrooms. And they actually said, um, you know, we want to do something for you. And I was like, all right. Um, you know, we can tell you're hurting. And I'm like, yeah, no, I am for sure. Um, and so we want to do a, a ceremony for you, a suicide ceremony. I said, okay. I'm like, you guys should have told me before, like I would have grabbed the beer and I would have uh you know grabbed the smokes because usually that's how you do it recreationally or how I knew how to do it anyway. And they're like, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna go up to five grams and we're going to you're not gonna be able to turn it off and and you're gonna you're gonna probably, you know, purge some demons and and um and just just see head on like why you're feeling the way you are while you're suicidal.
1: And you had no experience of this before and of like- Not at what? this, no, not yeah. at this level. No, definitely not. And I told them all before, right? You prepare,
0: you're not only preparing yourself, but you're also preparing the person or the people that are gonna be around you when you're doing something like this. And um, so I told them, I was like, yeah, man, I was very, very suicidal and for these reasons. And uh, they said, all right, we, we think, we, think we, we can help. I said, all right. Um, so we, we, we did it. Um, we dosed at night. We fasted for like four or five hours. And uh, it was like, it was, (laughs) it was the most difficult three hours of my life for sure. Um, Do you mind
1: sharing some of the, some of the things? Like what was that actual experience? Like what came up for you? What did you experience? What did you witness? Was it visual? Was it like deep somatic releasing? Was there some grieving energy release? You talk about. You know purging you've done some deeper work with some plant medicines now, and purging's a big part of it and for those of you that haven't done, purging is just a release of energy it can show up in in throwing like physically throwing up or crying, yawning, laughing, like somatic shaking. what was that that first five gram experience like for you so you know um you know your hamstrings like like where it kind of connects
0: your pelvis um mm-hmm. I would always roll that out like. To make sure so it was tight muscle they always had to yeah, yeah. work in yeah so i took so we lemon teched it so we we did a faster release so what it does it breaks down psilocybin into the active ingredient that when it's in your belly that res, that binds to the 5ht2a serotonin receptors and so it breaks it from psilocybin to psilocybin so essentially you're taking like boom you're you're kind of in it in the first mm-hmm. five or ten minutes and i just wasn't wasn't prepared but everybody's, you know, around me having a good time. We're all talking, and I'm just my legs are just, and um, I can tell. I'm like, oh man, this is uh, this is this isn't this isn't going to be fun. Um, and and then I started to, um, not purge, but kind of dry heave. Like, but be, that's why you fast, so you're not you're not having somebody like throw up all the mushrooms and everything. And um, and then I would get, I would get up and I would go outside. And, uh, was kind of yelling, like, you know, kind of things like, what is this? And, and, uh, uh, just, I got caught on this farm that I didn't, it was my first time there. I've only been there for like four or five hours with people. I only knew one person. Um, and, and then I, I felt, so I kept doing this loop, um, in the house, outside of the house, in the house. Dry heaving when I was outside of the house ah, screaming um, and then any time that my guide you know put his hand on me it's like, oh, it's like just felt so good, you know, and he's like, hey man, just keep this is what's supposed to happen right you know mm-hmm. um and and so then I you know do that loop again and um and then eventually it was like Good two, two and a half hours. Um, I thought I was kind of done. You know, I was just so taxed energy wise. And then uh, so we all laid down and then we put on 300, uh 432 hertz music. And we all kind of laid there and um then it was like it was, it was beautiful when I started to like not fight. Um, but this medicine has has the ability to kind of exasperate what's at the forefront of your mind. So show you what's wrong. Then you can move past it after the ceremony if you integrate it into your life. And um, as we were lying there, my friend used to have this long curly hair when we used to play together. And I grew up Catholic, so I was an altar boy, very deep in like the church. Um, so he came to me as as like this reincarnation of uh, of God when I was feeling really good. And and uh, and he goes, um, he goes, hey man, like thank you for coming. We want we want you on this team. Like, what I remember saying, like, me, why me? I'm, like, I'm such a fucking loser. Why me now? You know? And I've always kind of that's a common theme in my life. I've always been very, very hard on myself. Um and he's like, no, man, it's like, you know, you're you're amazing. We love you. You have a high high energy. We wanna activate you. We want you a part of this. And I was like, and even just hearing those words he's kind of laid down and listen to the music and just let it take me wherever it needed to
1: and where would you say it took you
0: this place of like unconditional love and 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 this feeling this feeling just a feeling that i'd lost that i think we all you know could lose at points in our life because you know we're worried about things we really shouldn't be worried about even though you know um, I still participate in those things. It's less, I'm more carefree about it because I don't take it as seriously because I view it all as a game, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it was amazing. Um, I fell asleep three hours, which is, un, it's not that normal. Like, usually it's like a four, five, six hour trip. Um, but because it was so intense and then I woke up the next day. And I just describe it as feeling the way I should. So I describe it as, uh, we didn't really get into it, but there were a lot of stuff that happened. Like when I was a minor and and junior and, um, I describe it as like how I felt before I left for junior hockey, before I really started taking a lot of really big hits and, um, and I just felt
1: good. I felt like I had some energy. So even further back than you can remember because it was just a slow, we started taking big hits. So it's just like, this is my normal state of being. Yeah, it's my baseline. Baseline. Yeah. So you had But a, I'm
0: also like killing it. Right? <laughs> it, was like, it can't be that bad. I'm yeah. like, I'm one of 700 people.
1: Playing so in talk the about that relief, that that relief you felt instantly when you woke up. Like, this, was it just like, holy cow, I haven't felt this good in as Ooh. long as I can remember?
0: Dude, I was still confused. You know, like I was like, what the fuck? Does what happen? was that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. And then we just talked. We stayed on the farm for like a good week. Um, I ended up going to another like weekend retreat that had a stack ceremony of of um, you know seven grams of psilocybin, an IM shot of ketamine in the afternoon, and we finished on five mEO DMT. So that was another whole amazing
1: type of experience. How much further longer after this first experience was that one? Six days. Six days. So I mean, those are some deeper, powerful medicines that I'm sure it was your first time experiencing those. How did how was that experience? It was amazing. Yeah. It was um, it was unbelievable. A lot more enjoyable than than the work I'd done previously, for sure. Yeah. I just want to share too, because like the you talked about the the darkness and the demons and the 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 just the intensity of energy that you were feeling that you had to work through. And I just want to share, like if you're getting into these Types of medicine. That's why they talk about the importance of set and setting and having a proper facilitator to say, hey, this is normal. This is what is supposed to happen. Because people hear about bad trips. I know I heard about bad trips growing up with like mushrooms and all this stuff. And it's if you took that and you just were in a cabin by yourself, you'd be like, what the fuck has happened to me? Could be considered a bad trip. But those, that's what's supposed to happen because your body is resetting and your neurochemistry. And then there's some type of mystical experiencing happening as well. Um, So I just wanted to share that with people that are are new to this and and starting to like research and get into it because it's the importance of really having that facilitation and that integration and being around other people, being able to talk through it. There's just so much more that goes into that experience than just trying to reach nirvana or connect with God.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, so I should have prefaced all this with I'm not a doctor um, and I'm not recommending that anybody go do this. I'm just talking from my experience. But in this experience and the other one, it saved my life. Um, I, in the, in the two weeks following, I, all of my symptoms either lessened in intensity or all but started to fade away. Wow. I, um, I went home, I planted 750 cannabis for CBD plants from hemp. Um, I'll send you a photo after this of the before and after six months. Um, I, uh, I did brain scans in my blood work before I left because I always tested these new modalities every six months. So I would switch it up. You know, I'm very intentional with everything that I kind of do because if something worked, I want to prove it. Anecdotal stories are cool, but if you can back it up with some, some science, it's even better. Um, and yeah, man. So I did another large dose. So let me back up. I, um, I did the, the high doses on those two weekends, six days apart. And then I know, and I knew from my research, nothing gets fixed in five hours. So how could I, you know, how could we create or sustain this this uh, sort of healing without obviously having to go and do that high a dose? Luckily, this PhD biochemist um, did microdoses in combination with, you know, CBD and functional mushrooms. So I did that, um, you know, in a, in a specific regimen. and then. Um, uh, I, I retested my brain six months later, uh, after doing another high dose three months by myself, um, that time. And, um, I got it back. No abnormalities on my brain scans and my blood work was completely clear. And I looked 20 years younger and I was sleeping great. I was eating. I wanted to be present with my kids. I, uh, it was I mean, I'm still amazed to this day about the transformation, but I'm also still working on it because um, I keep getting better. You know, like, um, you know, right now, business-wise, I'm in a very kind of stressful part of, of kind of what we're going through. And, uh, but, you know, I'm, I've, I've done every, as an athlete, right? You do everything you can to prepare for the opportunity. You can't change. You can't like influence the actual opportunity of if someone gets hurt, you get in the lineup. But you're doing everything to to be ready for the opportunity. So that's what we've done with a couple of different things. And now I'm just kind of waiting for that that thing to come through. It's um, a lot of unknown, which can cause a lot of fear. But this medicine just helps helps you manage that, you know, and helps you. When I leave this office, I don't bring it out there. I don't, I don't yell at my kids. I don't, you know, because I'm stressed at at work, I, uh, helps me manage all of that. Um, uh, which is, which is nice. And I still practice with the medicine if I can't, you know, figure something out. Um, why wouldn't I? Because like you, I saw the fMRI screens. I saw what it does from a neuro anti-inflammatory
1: standpoint. And yeah, it was, uh, yeah, man, just speaking to the, the relief that you must have felt from you know being on this journey of trying to figure out what's wrong with you, knowing what's wrong with you, but trying to figure out ways to heal yourself and investing all this money, all this time, all these different modalities, going to all these different places, connecting with all these different experts, doctors, like trying to figure out how to heal your brain. And then you go do this, these mushrooms and you go to this farm. And you feel bucks. like you've never felt for 30 bucks. <laughs> and just talk about the relief you must've felt. Like, what was that experience like? Just being like, wow, was it just like a deep breath? Like, whew. it brought a lot of relief, but
0: like, I also, there's no like finality to, um, to like the healing process. Right. Like in my mind, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like, oh, I got this now so I can stop you know, and, and I continue to test my brain, my blood. And um, then the only other thing is like, okay, there's an intricacy to this because this, what I took is illegal. It's a schedule one substance um, designated by the government to have no medicinal value um, and be highly abusive, which couldn't be further from the truth for this one particular substance. Um you know, it goes back to the war on drugs and Nixon and, and wanting to um, lock up brown and black communities, right? So uh, I had to be careful with what I say, or I had to like at least reconcile with the fact that I have kids and, and if I use my platform to talk about this, I could get in trouble. But if I don't talk about this and how it saved my life, more people are going to die. So I just started fucking talking about it, you know, and, and, um, I don't sell it. I'm not, you know, breaking laws from that standpoint. It's like a personal use thing. And, and I, um, I started to get involved in decriminalized nature movements. I, we helped get with Melissa Lavasani who's now at the psychedelic medicine coalition and and helping to change federal scheduling of these substances and laws and funding um, she introduced initiative 81, uh, to Washington, DC, and, and she was instrumental in getting that passed. And I just offered my story and where I could be helpful. So I started to mess around in policy and, and then, um, you know, created a company called WeSona, which took the method that I used high doses and low doses of psilocybin. Um, and, uh, we, we went through the FDA process. We met with them in March and. That was amazing. And I thought, you know, I believe in a lot of different ways to access this medicine. So like decrim nature is a model that decriminalizes prosecution of people that grow and gather and gift this medicine that is deemed a schedule one. And, um, and then I wanted to make sure that concussion survivors could go to a doctor. There's no medication for concussion survivors that can be prescribed to us. They prescribe the antidepressants and, these other things that exasperate these other symptoms, right? That's that's the model. The, the big pharma model is prescribe something. It's going to cause two more symptoms. But don't worry, we got something for those two symptoms. Mm-hmm. And it just it's a cyclical cycle. It doesn't get to the root cause of why these symptoms are arising, um, which is why these psychedelic medicines are so amazing. And then. Um, You know, I um, I also like believe fully in in the policy that's happening with Measure 109 and Prop 122 in Colorado, where these statewide therapeutic adult use programs are being set up um, uh, in these states, and and then you can take a full spectrum medicine right in a regulated manner, so it's not buying it. You know, from the underground, if you don't wanna, there's there's a lot of steps to growing mushrooms. So if you don't want to go and do that, then you can fly to Oregon. You're not called a patient, you're called a client, and you can go and access it. And it's not just for people that are sick, it's for people that want to explore their consciousness, which you know, why shouldn't they have access to this either? Right. So um, I just started to play around in it all, and it's been now, you know, four and a half years and been a that's an amazing ride you know i've met a lot of really amazing people i've also met a lot of really bad people (laughs) and uh people that have taken advantage of me which which a lot of people do right um and and we as former athletes tend to experience it more than often most likely but we also i played a role in it Um, and I'm grateful again for the suffering, for the lessons, for the sickness, for the concussions, for the, for the, for everything, because, um, I believe that this information about ayahuasca, psilocybin, cacti, MDMA for PTSD that maps is working on in phase three trials with the FDA, it's going to help millions and millions and millions of people, you know, and I have a platform because I played a freaking game. So like, Mm. what better way? to use the platform than to talk about this stuff. And all I have to do is talk about it, you know? Um, So it's an amazing life.
1: (laughs) Beautiful, man. And I'm really, really, yeah, I'm really grateful for you, man. And, And you spoke about having gratitude for the lessons, the challenges, the adversities, all the brain trauma, everything. And isn't that the secret sauce? Being able to find gratitude for all of the, challenges on the journey because it's always leading us deeper into deeper levels of, of ourself and deeper connections with, you know, creation in this reality. And yeah, man, I'm really, really, uh, really thankful for, for the journey you've been on, man. So how are you feeling now as far as four and a half years ago, having this experience and the symptoms, I mean, do you experience any of that still, or do you still do just microdoses and, and management protocols?
0: Yeah. So now it's, um, like I said, like I continue to feel better. Right. Um, I continue to practice with the medicine on a subperceptual perceptual level. Um, and when, the, when I feel the need, it's definitely gotten more pronounced, right. More time in between the larger doses, but I can't figure something out or, you know, one of the things that um, a lot of people talk about, you know, in this industry, if you want to call it like an industry or in this, this world, it's like, well, you can only use it if you're sick and, 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 you know, there's there's two different ways to do it. It's like high doses and, and low doses. Well, in fact, it's like the best brainstorming tool that you could ever have if you want to be creative. You know, if mm-hmm. you want to. So there's a couple other indications that you can use it for that don't have to deal with like depression and and anxiety and so it's you know you got to talk about that and um, and yeah no just uh, you know really grateful for the life that I have the the healing that I've found um, the um, people that I've met good and bad and then what the future holds Uh, and the future's, you know, really bright. And I don't know about you, but when I was playing, man, I was like, Oh God, this is boring. Is this it? <laughs> <laughs> is this what, this is this is what my life is going to be like pushing a fucking puck around? This yeah. sucks, you know, towards the end. Anyway, it was, it, uh, and maybe it always sucked because I was always, you know, like I said, in the beginning, I was always um doing things that that were harmful to myself, so um and now yeah i don't just don't think that way i'm much much happier, love my kids, love that's my life oh man
1: what do you think this uh this greater kind of you know this this psychedelic renaissance that's taken shape and the decriminalization of some of these medicines, and obviously they're becoming way more pronounced in our culture and society. They're just way more available, way more people talking about them. Yeah. How do you think this shifts our collective paradigm that we're moving through? You said there's a lot of scary shit happening in the world, a lot of unknown, a lot of shifts politically, socially, environmentally, financially, and then we got these these medicine teachers, like sp- specifically the cacti, the, the mushrooms, ayahuasca, these these really high level Consciousness teachers coming online in a very beautiful way, and for those that have worked with these medicines, they're really profound in teaching us some deeper wisdom, not only about ourselves but about consciousness, the planet. How do you see, you know, the coming years playing out with this, you know, shift in paradigm that's happening?
0: I don't know. Um, I uh, it's a lot to think about. I do think that you know it makes people. Th- think more about their actions. It, it helps people be in the present moment. And it's a bit of an ego killer for sure, where um, if you once thought that, you know, making money was, was was all there is and getting one over on people, and um, it can it can help you realize like, no man, you know, that's part of it. You have to, of course, you gotta live, you gotta pay your bills, you gotta support the lifestyle that you create. you don't have to create this chaotic lifestyle and then go and run people over to try to support it. And, and like the time that you're at, that I'm at soccer with my kids or, you know, I try to cherish that. And I'm not, you know, I sit in this office and I work really hard, but you know, I also take my computer outside and like, I'm like active. And so do I think that like this movement Um, and more people are talking about it and more people are gonna get healed and 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 it's gonna create a nicer, better world. It could create a smarter world, damn right, you know. Um, so that's that's encouraging. And but will it like deconstruct the war on drugs? And will it will it make nicer politicians and will, you know, uh will the will the large companies, the the seven or eight companies that control our whole food source, are they gonna suddenly do this and then everything's gonna no. You know, I don't believe that. I believe that we and individuals that don't like something need to talk less about what they don't like and create what they want, create the change in the world. That's when my life turned around, right? Um, That medicine told me that I was creating my own hell and I was in control of either changing it or not, you know, um, stopping to be negative and switching to a different perspective of being grateful. I only could have switched that perspective though, if I started to feel better, which luckily I did. And I believe really strongly that, you know, these things can help people feel better. And that's mm. kind of where I, that's where I kind of, you know, stop now, have I seen where we go and and on an ayahuasca journey and all that other good stuff? Absolutely. You know, do I, do I talk about it a lot? Not right now, but the time, the time will come for mm. sure.
1: Mm. Uh-oh. Yeah, I think the biggest shift anybody can take is going from that victim consciousness into that creator consciousness. And for yeah. someone that was in such deep physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, and like, there, there's every reason for you to be in that victim consciousness. And then being able to move through that, I think just gives a lot of people hope. So no matter where you're at, what you're moving through, there is hope to shift that energy and begin taking responsibility, even if you're in the shittiest of circumstances and you've getting beaten down by life or you feel like I'm in a high inflammatory state or I have this, these different things like start going and taking responsibility and doing the things that you can do and trying to find different ways to shift your perspective, your consciousness and do these deeper healings. And these medicines are becoming more readily available. And I know with the company that you're creating, you're, you're working on making these uh, more available. We want to speak a little bit more to the things that you're you're working on, the things that you're bringing to the world and the things that you're putting your energy into and where people can find more information on that.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, obviously policy I still support um, uh, in the background, whether it's like a, a decrim movements or um, these bills that are in being introduced uh, to states. It creates an adult therapeutic use program, but it also decriminalizes a lot of these substances. So it kind of does two a twofer. And then um, I've been working on, you know, we saw and getting a medication for for traumatic brain injury related depression through the FDA system, um, and that program's you know moving along. And um, and yeah, I believe in education and awareness and and helping people understand how to, you know, grow their own medicine if that's something that that they want to do. Um, but also, like you know, taking a dose of something also means working out. And it means getting good sleep and it means eating well. And, and it, you know, it's not like this is a cure-all it's, you know, maybe we made it sometimes it can sound like that, but it's not like, it's a, um, it's a tool to be used to just make your, your life better if you're willing to like, you know, do a ceremony and then not just go pound McDonald's right away. And like, you know, and listen, trust me, like the golden arches, I know that they're everywhere. And, and, uh, sometimes I fall victim, but like, I'm also human where it's like, Hey man, I am not perfect. This doesn't make you perfect. Um, and so I think just, uh, it made me really comfortable with who I am. And, um, and yeah, I'm just excited to whoever wants to hear the message or gets called to these medicines. Cause you don't just like all of a sudden wake up. You're not really like in pain or something's up. And, and ask, well, or stumble upon this podcast or an article or, you know, uh, everything happens. Uh, everything happens for a reason. It's a simple saying, but um, if you're getting called to it, I encourage you to just kind of do your research. There's a lot of really good companies out there educating and, um, and then uh, yeah, make, make your own educated decision.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that brother. Um, final question. Just, you know, speaking back to uh, elite athletes in particular, if any of them are listening to the show, they may be going through a transition, struggling with uh, that identity crisis and shift. You know, I know you have specifically uh, dealt with some deeper brain trauma and symptoms that you've dealt with, but there's you know a wide majority of athletes that go through you know depression, loss of purpose, loss of identity, all these things that can be really challenging. Um, is there anything specifically that you can offer to athletes that may be moving through that, any resources, any tools or any direction to help support them in moving through this, this deeper journey of self-discovery, hopefully coming to uh, a deeper connection with, with themselves and in who they are.
0: Yeah. Um, one thing that like got told to me or that I learned was um, like, I am Daniel who played hockey. I'm not Daniel, the hockey player, you know? So like that was one thing I did, but we get so caught up in it cause we've done it from a young age and it's attached to who we are and that's how everyone knows us. Um, but you can definitely, you know, dig in and figure out like what your other likes are and loves are. And then, um, and then just take your time with, um, picking the next path. Right. Um, and don't be scared to ask for help because I ask so many dumb questions every day on these business <laughs> Zoom calls and stuff, but it's how you learn, you know? And, um, and yeah, I think just, uh, being true to who you are, um, you know, you'll always, you'll always kind of find, um, find the way, like the path of least resistance. Um, and you know, like, listen guys will listen to people like you, you know, they'll listen to guys like us. Cause then the reality too is, um, um, you know, not many people did what we did. And I know a lot of people want to be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know what you're talking about. You know, usually athletes follow other athletes. Right. So there's a large part of me that's kind of, um, wanting to get back to what I was kind of doing before chapter five and the nonprofit and just talking about, And helping to support people as best we can, which I still do. I still take a lot of calls from alumni guys and former athletes. And, um, but maybe I start getting into that in a more intentional way, but um, you know, kind of that thing with Steve, right. When I met Steve it was like, Oh, what is that guy? What's up with Mm -hmm. him? How does he do that? Stay close to that person. And um, you know, and then, and then try to move forward and pick pieces that you like, you're not going to like everything leave the other ones behind and, um, and move forward. Yeah.
1: Beautiful. Thanks, Daniel. I just want to honor you, man. So grateful for you taking the time. I know you're busy, man, building all these, uh, businesses and initiatives and really trying to, to share this message with the world. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and and the work that you're doing, uh, to support, support not only athletes, but this deeper healing movement. Uh, so thanks brother. Of
0: course. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man.
1: All right, man.